0: And welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting-edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can Pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Alex Watson, co-founder and CEO of Gretel.ai, a startup that offers APIs for creating anonymized and synthetic data sets. Previously, he was the founder of HarvestAI, whose product Macy, an analytics platform protecting against data breaches and other cybersecurity attacks. Was acquired by AWS. Alex, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered.
1: Charlie, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast.
0: Yeah, it's super exciting to have you on. I've been meaning to have some expert on synthetic data and on the anonymization or anonymization of, because it is such a prevailing trend, especially given maybe the Facebook data breach is in all over the news recently. People are always wondering how can we be able to have real privacy in an age of mass data collection and presumably uh, mass users of algorithms on on those data, which can by themselves provide a lot of value, but at the expense in, at least for now, in of, uh, of our privacy. So hopefully you can provide us some answers on how this can be done.
1: I'm excited to be here. And I think the problem you brought up is exactly why we founded Gretel and the work I've been doing for the past couple of years. As you mentioned, I think it starts with how difficult it is and seemingly like impossible at times it is to safely share and collaborate with sensitive data. We strongly believe it shouldn't be scary. And we can use technology and we can make privacy an engineering problem that developers can use to enable safe access to data.
0: Awesome. And before we get into more on that synthetic data piece, I do want to start with a little bit of your background. So how were you first exposed to computer science and what made you decide to go into it?
1: My first memory where I knew I was going to do computer science was when I was competing with my brother playing Star Wars. So we were playing a Star Wars game, and he was always better than me. And no matter how much work I put in, he would put in a couple hours and he would beat my score. And I started to realize this wasn't a fair fight, so I needed to find a way to to, to even the playing field. And I downloaded my first text editor. And I realized that I had the ability to edit the game score myself directly through the binaries and just got completely hooked around computers. From there, I went to Indiana University for computer science, graduated from Indiana University and had a really neat opportunity. This was just after September 11th. And I received an offer from the NSA. And I went and I worked there for seven years and got to really start working on probably the precursors to some of the big data challenges we're working on now, where you're working on massive amounts of data And we were starting to apply initially heuristics, but then really got into machine learning and neural nets to help weed through data and help make what would be an intractable computer science problem, tractable by applying machine learning. Interesting. And then after that,
0: you, of course, went on to start multiple businesses. So how did you get that entrepreneurial itch? What were you thinking as you started your first business?
1: I think I uh, always probably had it to some extent. I think a lot of the founders that I talk to or people in startups, it's one of those things that you just always want to build something and you want to build something better. So I think if you find yourself tinkering with technologies or open source projects, I think it's a pretty natural jump um, for a lot of people to, to get up into the startup space. For me, when I left NSA, I think I was really curious about security and had a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder where I felt like at the time, and this is back in you know the early 2010s, that companies and businesses just weren't ready or prepared or even aware of the risks that they faced from a like a really determined attacker and i knew i wanted to build my first company around this idea can we help level the playing fields for companies that are trying to protect their assets from cybersecurity risks with harvest the idea was saying can we apply like actually two really neat phases of machine learning one natural language processing And the second would be, we call it behavioral analytics, but really understanding what risky activity looks like. So it was a fascinating computer science challenge and really applying it at scale. One of the things that I realized in the security world was regardless of what type of detection that you had to find attacks against your data, At the end of the day, it was always a human that was sitting there looking at the data, trying to figure out, is this data important to my business, is it important to me? That's a manual process. It takes tons of time and it takes a lot of knowledge. And one of the first questions that we had at at Harvest was saying, can we automate a lot of this process? Can we help you find your important data? And then really only alert when you have risky activity coming into that data. So we got... Harvest really started around this idea of can we help businesses protect their Google Drive, their Office 365 environments? But then it grew from there into Salesforce, into AWS, into GCP. Really, as people are starting to adopt cloud technologies, A, the process of connecting to those clouds and getting the type of information you need to do the job became a lot easier with standard APIs we could use to access things and then incredible visibility. And we're not often. In a security world, when you're trying to deploy a security product, you have this phase of how long is it going to take us to get meaningful adoption within the business. And the really neat thing about the cloud APIs was it allowed you to see, for example, anytime a file was downloaded across the entire business and you could have a 100,000 person business, you get that kind of visibility through a standard interface, through OAuth authentication and things like that, that gives you the ability to start asking these questions. Is this a normal type of activity? Is this normal data? Yeah, and
0: even now, that's quite a hard problem for a lot of businesses to solve. And I'm assuming that's why AWS recognized that. And presumably, that's uh, why they had incorporated now their product, AWS Macy, originating from Harvest AI. So I guess starting off a little bit before that, what were some of the lessons that you had learned working with a data-centric, machine-learning-centric product?
1: I learned early when we started building Harvest, the importance, and this is one from starting with a really solid engineering background like the importance and the the value it brings just to give you a super consistent ability to reason about the data you're working with. So building that initial data pipeline, when we first started building Harvest, we actually built it using a technology called Apache Spark, which is real-time job distribution, which was a lucky technology investment that we made. It actually aligned really well with AWS's investments in EMR and things like that. We did the transition later. So really being able to depend on that data and test that data as it's going through is really important. So... One of the good habits that we picked up during our time at AWS was the importance of canary testing. Essentially validating your own assumptions about what's happening inside of your data pipeline by inserting known activity into that pipeline. So in the AWS world with Macy, when we're helping customers to protect their S3, their cloud environments, and identify important information there, we had built a canary framework, which would essentially provide like a known level of activity happening constantly. So we would be, have an automated process that would upload a file that we knew had sensitive information and we would validate our ability to detect it. One of the other really cool habits we learned at AWS around this was the value of really using these canaries to mimic customer activity as much as possible. So what we were measuring wasn't just an SLA on how fast we could classify data. It was really an SLA on what is the customer experience here from the point that a piece of data gets uploaded that has sensitive information that might break their policy to the point that we detect it. And when you learn to look at your ops charts and you can boil it down to exactly that activity that you're trying to, to guarantee on behalf of your customer, it gives you a solid uh, foundation to start building new services and apps on top of.
0: Mm, very interesting. Yeah, that testing piece is something that I think a lot of people are Starting to think a lot more about, and definitely something that in my own work has been something that we've tried to stand up in uh, relatively recently, just because uh, these are stochastic systems and they're not, uh, they're not definitely not as easy to test. And so you do need that full testing of the pipeline available with things that work in the past. And so when you were acquired by AWS, what was the process like of starting to work more closely with them? Uh, presumably, you have more data available to you. How did that transition go?
1: AWS was, a, I think, a really good place for us to go as a startup, I think, due to that really just incredible relationship they have with their customers. One of the things that AWS has done really well is, is partnering with close companies, Netflix, for example, where we could go and talk to their engineers and just say, hey, what's hard about building with data? It felt so natural coming from a startup where you have that kind of level of access To going into, while AWS is a very big company, I think they have very small teams. Those teams are really empowered to build whatever they want to on behalf of their customers. And they're also given really great access to talk to customers and really understand what's hard about building with data, what kind of problems are you running into. So that part felt very natural and it was a really uh, nice thing. I think the challenge we had was how do we build the first security services that are offered to AWS customers, essentially building a kind of a new product from the ground up. Second challenge was dealing with the absolutely insane scale that happens in the cloud. And as as an example, at Harvest, before we required, we had a couple of the biggest Google Drive G Suite users in the entire world, and we thought we knew what big data was. So even the biggest Google Drive, at least as of a couple of years ago, were in the hundreds of terabytes of size for the total thing. And from an NLP challenge, That is an order of magnitude or two off from what we had to deal with in the AWS world, where we had customers that were dumping entire data centers or migrating entire colo spaces and things like that into the cloud. A couple really interesting learnings that we had there were A, it's not just about building a really neat machine learning algorithm and having it work. To be successful long-term, and I think it's something that you can't really undervalue, the the value of thinking about early, you need to think about what's gonna happen and how is this gonna work when it scales? What parts of my system are going to break as we scale? And can I continue to offer the same level of quality and experience for customers as it scales? And that that was a big challenge for us. I think one of the big learnings that we had was we initially approached the problem saying, of course, people know where the important data is they need to protect it. So they'll probably just want to run in their prod environment, and it's probably a couple buckets they want to protect. And one of the things we discovered as we really started working with customers was, and I think it's actually a really neat story, it starts off with something scary, which is people don't know where their important data is. It's across hundreds of buckets and tens of accounts across their AWS environment. the That's scary. I think the really cool thing that we saw was this like, level of developer empowerment that a lot of our our customers were looking at. And they were saying, we don't want to be so prescriptive as to say that it needs to land in this bucket. We want to build an environment where teams are encouraged to innovate and experiment and build their own applications that can be pushed into prod. But we need visibility across all that. So we came to see that scale challenge actually as a really empowering thing, saying, this is really cool. A lot of the companies that we're talking to are trying to find ways to enable experimentation and innovation and how can we better support that?
0: As it relates specifically to machine learning, these NLP models are while not as big as they are today, of course, they were still quite uh, computationally intensive. What were some of the more, maybe more generalized learnings from scaling analytics, uh, scaling the machine learning core?
1: We were a uh, early adopter of serverless technology with AWS acquiring Harvest back in the 2016 timeframe. We were re-architecting our solution to make it work at the scale that we needed to. And right at this time, you had Lambda and other really really cool technologies coming on board. So we said, A, we wanted to be at the forefront of how do we deploy serverless technologies, but then B, like what kind of neat use cases could we go after? And what we ended up finding that there is no silver bullet, but there's a neat balance between the two. So some of the really cool things that we learned with serverless actually in Lambda is that while I think the security model for it is not super well understood, there are some really kind of awesome benefits to this like on-demand containerization model. Mostly when we were looking at running NLP on an arbitrary document or a PDF, like that is the riskiest thing that you could possibly do from a security perspective because there's so many different vulnerabilities that might exist for a particular um, application. So this is one that we found a Lambda particularly well suited that we could at a high level lock down the environment and the ability of a Lambda to access anything, use that for that really sensitive extraction of text or detonation of the document, essentially, you know, pulling the text out of a PDF or a parquet file or things like that. And then really use the like the more persistent machine learning pipeline, essentially, to process the data after it had been extracted. So it was a neat kind of combination of serverless for both the security and then the ability to expand and uh, scale it very quickly but then traditional heavy metal containers that were running in the cloud in a more persistent manner that had both our big models running. Other big learnings, I think, as we went through there was, I think, the, the value of really looking at where you're spending your, your time computationally. At the end of the day, like, Uh, A business model, especially like an AWS business model, is built around how much time, how much work you're doing on behalf of a customer. And that is often driven by the computational costs that you have. So one of the things that we learned from a uh, ML perspective early is that named entity recognition, for example, and running neural networks gave us incredible precision recall for really hard things like names and addresses and things like that. But you don't necessarily want to run that for everything. It becomes very expensive and you have to at some point kind of turn that cost over to your customers and make your service more expensive which may make it not scale um, to the levels the customers want to use it so that's one we learned to embrace really fast technologies that we could build like regular expressions and fast text embeddings and things like that, where we could build custom detectors to find things with a high confidence that were very performant and fast. And we could leave the heavy lifting machine learning in ER frameworks to domain specific things or names and addresses without having to run on everything.
0: That last one is really fascinating. And uh, I was just reading a, a paper from booking.com where they talked about this, where it was your business metrics. How do you tie your business metrics to your actual model metrics? And so in their case, they, they found, like you're saying, they found these curves where after a certain point, any added accuracy is just strictly not worth the computational cost. And in some cases, it's actually worse. So I'm curious how you found that uh, learning in the first place. What did did a customer say, like, we uh, your service is too expensive and we don't need this accuracy? I'm guessing it wasn't that straightforward.
1: No, this is a lesson I think that I learned during my time at AWS and that we've kept doing is to always keep having those customer conversations and have as many as you possibly can. So we have a roadmap going, obviously, uh, even at Gretel as we're building right now, but that roadmap is constantly influenced by discussions that we have with, with our customers. And as we start making an advance or as they start using our software and they apply it towards their particular use case, like understanding that use case and understanding what inside that use case is driving that value for them is really important. In the AWS world, we called it working backwards. So starting with a customer problem and solving it. And really sticking to that, I think it's important to have that be your focus instead of saying, like, how do I apply this cool ML technology towards this problem? Start with a problem and then try to find out what the right technology is to apply to solve that. We started off with, and I still use it, actually, one of the most basic techniques in the working backward process is like defining the customer experience. And often we'll start with just like a comic book sketch of here's a customer and here's them onboarding. And this is what the process looks like for them to get started with your service. And there you can really both kind of iron out like what are the friction points you want to reduce for that customer? And then be like, what is the value you're bringing? And really trying to align your roadmap around that value helps quite a bit. When you're bringing that into
0: your machine learning requirements, like uh, going from that, say, customer interview data, and then how do you translate that into we should try and get like this percent precision recall F1, whatever metric you're using.
1: So when we started looking at, for example, the petabyte scale, the customer, and to go back to the earlier example we used, we have a customer that's dropping an entire data center in S3, and this is a large uh, scale example. You look at the total amount of data they have and then say what's important to you and they may have regulatory or compliance concerns about that data they may feel that their customer identity and trust are things they need to protect so really understanding what is it you're trying to find is it data that's exposed to the world that has your customer information inside of it really starting there and then we said what would it cost for us to do this effectively at scale and that's where you start to realize take the most efficient for example, NER performance framework out there you could pick on. There's a framework called Spacey, which is a really great uh, identity recognition framework. There's other ones out there, Flare, for example, TensorFlow, things like that. Optimize it as much as possible, run on GPUs, and just ask the questions like, how much is it going to cost me to classify a petabyte of data? And how long is it going to take? And that's where you can very quickly say, okay, that's not going to work. What types of things can we do to speed things up? And one of the really neat insights that we had as a team was saying, well, how do you get to a petabyte of data in the first place? Is it really completely heterogeneous data, right? That's changing um, every time, or are there massive amounts of repetitive data inside of there? And that's where some of the really cool innovation that our team happened when we started to realize that for lack of a better term, applying ML to our ML, but essentially looking at the types of data that we were doing at a thousand foot view and trying to identify the ones that look statistically different. What is the chance that types of data that our customer cared about exists inside of you know that data? And we had some really promising results. I think the really obvious approach that a lot of people would take would say, hey, we're going to randomly subsample one out of a thousand files to fit our budget. And that makes sense. You can explain that to someone very well. But what if for that one out of a thousand files, you're very careful about which file you pick and what types of performance gains would that drive? And that's a lot of the experimentation we did, both on data sets that we built ourselves and then working with our customers to identify what do they care about and what are the chances we find it. And so here, starting with a customer problem of needing to scan it, a arbitrarily large amount of data under a constrained budget, like what is the most efficient way to get there? And we were both able to speed up our algorithms. But then also when we realized we needed a 10x improvement in performance, we were able to find a way, as I was mentioning earlier, to identify the smarter candidates than just a purely random subsampling. Yeah, that's super cool. That
0: reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you've seen what Dropbox did with uh, using ML to get to figure out what they need to cache for their users. It was very similar to that where it was when we generate previews and we cache them, it's like a super expensive process. And if we want to reduce our costs, then we should find a way to have a model be able to predict what users are actually going to view on any given basis. And they were, ended up being able to save like $2 million a month, something crazy. So so yeah, that, that type of approach, it's uh, definitely starting to spread around. So now moving into more recent things with Gretel, of course, how did that start to come about? You were working at AWS on Macy for a while. At what point did you start to see this opportunity?
1: I think we saw the opportunity on a couple front. I think one thing, if you look across our team at Gretel, we've got a lot of ex-Amazonians, we've got a lot of Googlers. And I think one of the things that we realized was that those types of companies, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples of the world, have the resources to give their developers really the best of both worlds you have data privacy and you have streamlined access to data so we really started off saying like how do we make that possible for any developer and how do we take it out as outside of that ecosystem and and where companies the very few have the resources to make that possible can we use machine learning again to automate that manual process that was a, a really big focus a second one too was just in the conversations that we had with customers we would talk to companies whether they're in the financial or healthcare gaming space like you name it and they would say we have this incredible data we want to enable our developers to innovate with it and to build data driven products and make data driven decisions but then we saw these barriers that existed at these businesses if you don't know where your important data is how can you grant developers access to work with it so we saw you know some companies just blanket saying, no, build your own data or uh, talk to customers and gather data, but they weren't actually able to use the data. We saw other customers where they would have intentional friction that was introduced in the process. And they would say, if someone is willing to go through this gauntlet of challenges over a two to three month period, then they probably deserve access to the data. And then we saw really sophisticated companies like, like Amazon and Google Both with, while it was somewhat a a timely process where you could, you're a developer and you want to test an idea, you go through PM and compliance and legal approvals. And finally, like the engineering team gets access to build an API that you can use to test your idea. The flip side of that, and really, I think the lights on moment for us at Gretel was saying, most developers don't actually need access to that raw data, and it just creates risk for the business. Do you often, for testing your machine learning algorithm, need real names and real addresses? Do you need the data to be exactly the same or do you just need to match the distribution of the data and the insights of the data set? And that's where we said, what if we could give you access to 90 or 95% of the value five minutes later? And how does that open up innovation costs when you as a developer are so busy? Are you going to test an idea if you can test it in five, 10 minutes, or are you going to test an idea if you have to wait two months? And we're still learning and measuring what that value is, but it feels like the opportunity cost of being able to invest a little bit upfront in providing access to anonymized data or synthetic data will drive a lot of potentially ideas that never would have made it to to production just by making reducing the friction for developers to get access. Mm-hmm. And you have such a broad view of of the entire
0: space. You are making case studies, or companies making case studies of all these things of where it can be used. What are some of the most Exciting opportunities that you think will be enabled by being able to have easier access to this sort of synthetic anonymized data.
1: We've seen a couple things that have really stood out as being awesome. One, I think we talk a lot about the difficulty of sharing data across teams. Think of the difficulty of sharing data across organizations and doing it in a privacy-preserving way. But there's so many cases, and I actually talk about a neat one here in the medical research space where. It started by saying, hey, we have a rare disease data set that's so sensitive, the only way, this is working with one of our customers, the only way that we can access it is actually disconnecting our computer from the internet, plugging in directly to air gap network and then querying the database. So they hit real limitations in both allowing their researchers there to be able to experiment with that data. But then especially like, how do you enable sharing across the medical research world where a doctor could look at that data? And their question started with saying, hey, can we use synthetic data to create essentially an artificial data set? Um, happy to explain how our synthetic data uh, works, but essentially the idea is you train a machine learning model on a sensitive data set, and uh, it's a language model, causal language model similar to OpenAI's GPT-2, except running for structured data. Use it to create a new data set with the same like insights and distributions but one that is resistant to different types of attacks and things like that, re-identification attacks that we've seen causing real problems from a privacy perspective. And their question was, can we allow an arbitrary researcher at a different partner group to learn about this rare lymphoma or disease without actually learning about the patients? And that was a really neat challenge for us to take on, essentially applying differential privacy during the learning process So as we train the network during the optimization phase, we insert noise into the optimizer, which gives some level of protection against the model memorizing rare or types of data that shouldn't be memorized, secrets inside the data. So that was an incredible use case. And then that um, turned into something that I think when you said what gets me most excited, it turned into a a larger discussion when they said, what if instead of just creating another data set that matched the same types of distributions we have in our original data, can we build a better data set? And the question more specifically in this one is there's all sorts of biases that exist in data and a human level, whether it's gender bias, ethnicity bias, really any type of data bias there, like how do you create a data set that's more representative of um, your customer base or create a data set that will help your machine learning algorithms you're running on it generalize better. So we got to both touch, I think, building a better ML workflow and building better data sets. And then we're also, I'd say, the very early phases of thinking with our customers on what are the ethics challenges that they have with their data and how can we address that with technology? Yeah, those are two really great examples
0: and uh, super interesting to think about all the unique data sets that are out there that just uh, haven't been able to be released because of some of these issues. So super exciting to see what, what will start to come out. And as we know from the power of open source code that we've seen so far. And of course, a lot of people will say that what drives ML is not the code, but the data. So hopefully we'll see a lot more innovation in the space as we are able to start to openly share those data sets as well. Mm
1: yeah exactly i think that's a, a vision would be if it's possible with synthetic data using techniques like differential privacy and i, th- I think this is worth a whole discussion on itself like what guarantees does differential privacy get me with synthetic data what is epsilon what is delta and what does that mean to me if i'm not uh, a, a phd in data science or machine learning so I, I think the the real answer on is theoretical kind of provable guarantees but then also a really practical answer on what is the exposure that my model or my data set has of revealing sensitive information. Can information be extracted from my model? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but if this is possible, it could totally change how people share data. There might be no reason not to publish an anonymized version of your data set to Same way that we publish source code today. And I think that would be for innovation and also a competitive landscape where you don't have to be a massive collector of data to compete in a data-driven world. Creating some sort of place where people could share them and publish data, I think would be really cool. Mm -hmm.
0: So let's double click a bit onto that uh, differential privacy angle. If you were a researcher comes to you, they have a unique data set that has a lot of PII in it. What, how would you explain the guarantees that you do get with differential privacy to them if they're not, like you say, not necessarily technical?
1: There's a couple like key risks that you have when you are trying to truly anonymize data. There is pseudonymization, which is the identification of PII and or personal data or identifying data within your set and the replacement, the redaction, the removal, the encryption, whatever you want to do with it. from If you want to find Charlie Yu inside of a data set, the first step you need to do is you need to anonymize that. So I need to remove that name or replace it with something else. The second risk that you run into, and this is really, I think, been the biggest barrier to releasing anonymized data sets, is what is the risk that that seemingly anonymized data set has of being joined with another data set that I've never heard of. And how do I protect against that? I think the most kind of classic example of it is the Netflix challenge or the Netflix grand prize. This was a competition on Kaggle years ago. I think in like 2013, 2014 timeframe where Netflix anonymized a hundred million movie reviews and they published it on Kaggle. And they said, if you can build an algorithm that defeats our own algorithm, the best team will get a prize for a million dollars. So, as you can imagine, a lot of teams competed in this. And the actual data set was very simple. It had a date, it had a movie ID, it had a user ID, and it had a movie rating. So, it seems like that is a very safe uh, data set to release. But what some of the researchers realized that were working on the competition that actually ended up in the competition needing to be canceled was that they could re identify this data set. And it turned out the combination of a precise date plus a user ID, plus the, uh, the the movie rating could be combined with public scores that you would find on IMDB and other websites to very quickly de-identify users. And once you did that, you could tell each user what their movie rating was and things like that. And uh, The advantage of synthetic data is that you can prevent those types of, of identifying features inside data, which may just be a precise date It may be a precise user ID. There's other examples of companies that I think Google has a classic example where they accidentally in in one version of their Android operating system had a volume slider that ended up being like a 64-bit, a 64-bit integer. So you can imagine hundreds of millions of combinations, even if you have, for example, privacy mode turned on or incognito mode turned on, that like precise value is still very identifying to you, especially if you haven't changed it. So the power of synthetic data really is the both the ability to do traditional pseudonymization, but then also apply the second layer where you're creating a new completely artificial data set with completely artificial records that maintains the insights and the correlations of the original data.
0: Mm-hmm. So on that last example, we're all familiar with if you have fields like addresses, phone numbers, names, those are fairly easy to just find and, depending on your use case, either hash or just remove. How do you even find those fields like the volume slider that could be identifying? If you're just looking at this this data set, it's not immediately obvious that someone's volume could be what is able to re identify them.
1: I'd say it has to happen at two levels. And I can share kind of my opinion and the approach we've taken at Gretel on this one. One, when we built our synthetic data libraries, which are open source and they're on GitHub, so anyone can take a look at it. Essentially, one of the benefits of this kind of there was a couple different ways we could have built our synthetic library. We decided to go with, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of pure ML-based approach where we are training a language model on the data. So essentially, the data gets tokenized. It gets presented to a neural network, and the neural network learns to predict the next token. And one of the byproducts of this like tokenization process is that A, the, the network will need to see things multiple times to completely memorize sensitive data. But then B, those random elements inside of the data, the volume slider, for example, will entirely unlikely that those will get memorized by the network. And that's where things like differential privacy can actually give you provable guarantees that it won't. So just due to the randomness being an identifying feature inside of that data, the language model will give you some level of protection against that happening. So that's like really the first step. The second step, I think that's really important, is applying so practical guarantees. So membership inference attacks, like essentially beating up your model to figure out, can I extract some of these secrets to give me practical guarantees? Like me as a developer, theoretical guarantees are one thing. That sounds awesome. Show me so I can go home and sleep at night. That this customer ID that I know is important, this list of customer IDs or this combination of fields has never and can never be recreated by this model is the type of thing that I need to really feel confident both in the theoretical guarantees and also in my model at scale. So that's one that we're putting a lot of work into right now is how do I find what's important to me? How do I make sure that either can't be created by the model if I'm deploying my model in production or the synthetic data set I create has none of that data inside of it?
0: Mm-hmm. So to get a bit more technical into those guarantees that you get with differential privacy, because it is a language model, like in the model itself, there's not that many theoretical guarantees and stuff like that in it, In that itself. If I uh, recall correctly, and you mentioned that you were doing some of this work at the optimizer level, but what are the other intervention points at which you can insert those guarantees?
1: How our system works for the guarantees, as I was saying, it's a pure ML-based approach. So it starts with the language model and then it outputs data. That's where we decided if we're going to take an expert approach, apply the expert approach after the data has been created by the model. So we've gone a route where we've built something called validators, which are composable features that look at the training data set. And they try to learn what are the different types of distributions that we have in data, what are the date ranges that I've seen. And then when the data gets outputted by the, the language model and gets reassembled, we validate. Um, each record as it's being created by the network. And that is one place that is optimal to enforce some of the privacy concerns, where if we see something that the model is creating that that looks like a secret, or it looks like something it shouldn't have done, that's repeated from the original data set, for example, we can both alert on it And for example, kick off whatever type of process that you want, or we can just uh, remove that record from the data set and ensure that it's never created. I think the right answer is a combination of both. You want to know if these uh, models that you're using to create data are creating uh, repeating data that shouldn't be repeated from the original data set. So validators give you a really nice way to do it. The second thing, too, is that often when we work with customers, as much as data is big, it's not as big as you want it. And if you are training a synthetic data set on, uh, let's say, of 100,000 rows of medical data, you want to create 100,000 rows of new data, how do you ensure that how synthetic is my synthetic data? There's a couple techniques there, both from how you tune the parameters in your neural network as it's trained, but then also I think a really promising technology is training with public data first. So the kind of age-old pre-train and then fine-tune applies really well to the privacy space as well. So we're really excited about this idea on training language models, GPT style, on tremendous amounts of data that will actually you know, not only help you generate more differentiated data when you've got a limited input set, but then also give you some level of randomness that didn't exist or heterogeneousness that didn't exist in your original data. So definitely looking at it from, from both angles, both how do we you know, validate that nothing bad is happening from the model, but then how do we ensure that it doesn't happen in the first place?
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to be able to integrate some of that more recent self-supervised techniques into it and finding that it actually does have some of those guarantees or have some of add privacy and randomness and stuff like that. How exactly would uh, does that work where it's like you have you're just pre-training on that open data set or you're pre-training on the synthetic data set.
1: You always want to pre-train on data that looks as close as possible to the data that you're going to encounter in production. And one of the challenges we have to building a general purpose synthetic data library is that as weird as you might think someone's data might be, someone will always think of something weirder <laughs> than you've ever been able to imagine. So I think that's one of the benefits a of of open source I think for uh, for any companies that are thinking about building open source or thinking about what the benefits to them might be the just the ability for an arbitrary person with an arbitrary data set to be able to pull down that data set and generate a synthetic version of it or apply whatever kind of use case that you have with your model and then give you feedback on how it works really helps for you to identify what are people actually running on, what types of challenges are people actually hitting. So I think that's a neat one. But the second thing is you definitely want to start with the 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 most similar data that you can. So in, the, in our synthetic space, for example, we want to start with like loosely structured data, whether it's CSV or JSON or really uh, source code, right? Like any type of structured data the model can learn from is much more useful, for example, than looking at movie reviews and Twitter feeds and things like that. So we've built... This, I think it's about finding a balance between data that looks like what you think customers are going to do, but then data that will help your model generalize to things that perhaps you haven't thought of. And we've really gone the, the approach, I think we've had good luck so far, with saying, we're not going to say we're just going to train this pre-trained model on CSV or other synthetic data you have or other logs that look just like this. We're going to train um, computationally expensive, but train across the widest variety of structured data that we possibly can. And then... You can pre-train it, or sorry, you can fine tune your model based on your particular use case.
0: So there's two angles or two parts of uh, this of this field where it's like data anonymization, where you're taking the data and making sure that you can't reconstruct some of the PII, and then there's also the synthetic angle where you're taking the data and then adding even more records to it, or perhaps adding more fields or something like that. How would you think about the the kind of decision flowchart between which Technology to use? Like, in what cases would you just be able to anonymize and use that from now on? Or in which cases would you want to actually go ahead and make that entire synthetic data set?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, We view it as a pipeline that really, in the perfect world, starts with what we call transformations to the data, but that's pseudonymization, right? The identification, labeling, and removal of uh, like known personal data, and then ends with the creation of a synthetic data set based on that pseudonymized set. That's not necessary for every environment. And I think it boils back down to what are the customer use cases that you see. A lot of customers that we talk to or developers are saying, really, like, I have a production environment, I have dev test staging, I want to build a good pre-production environment for testing and we see in this case it's still internal data and what a lot of people we're talking to right now it can vary i'd say there's a couple approaches we see people take step a for kind of current state of the art is and it hurts a little bit but i think we've all kind of been there where you'll snapshot production database for six months you'll give it to a data scientist and have them remove all personal information and you'll just use that for your dev test staging And the hard part about that is it doesn't reflect the dynamism of your uh, production environment, doesn't reflect the changes to how people are using things. So you're, you're kneecapping yourself in the very beginning when it comes to testing. Other times we see companies that are just replicating, and this is one that gets really hard to do at scale, but replicating their production environment into dev test staging. The downside is you have more developer access to data, which creates risk for uh, maintaining customer trust and privacy and compliance, but you have the dynamism of real data. With Gretel, I think that's one of the really neat use cases we've gone after is saying, hey, I just want to create a better pre-production environment that has the same insights and dynamism as my original data. In which case, if timing, um, so if you need to do this very quickly within seconds of the time your production environment hits, it may make sense just to see to anonymize that data. So scan it, look for PII, replace it with something sane and put it inside of your environment. And you just use that for internal testing, maybe demos. That works pretty well. We found when you want to share things across your organization, perhaps teams that you haven't worked with before, perhaps like different use cases, BI teams, things like that. Or if you want to share with a partner, going back to that medical research example, then we found that the full synthetic workload and pipeline works very well.
0: So you gave us a little bit of a preview of how it works with, it's a language model, but it's somehow you've adapted it for For structured data for tables so how does that exactly work
1: we started out with the idea that we wanted to build a synthetic data library really for developers so from a product standpoint the question is do we build something that interfaces directly to whatever data warehouse database data streaming technology whatever that you have in which case we would spend a lot of time building adapters to talk to that technology and export it without hurting your production environment? Or do we assume that the developer there knows best how to pull that data out of that environment and really just needs, if our currency is dictionaries or CSVs or Pandas data frames, do they need a tool to identify and remove sensitive data from there? And we really decided on the latter. We thought it was a more differentiated approach long-term. It fits better with our customer base that developers know how to use their data. And really what we wanted to become was part of this source and sync based model where you have a pipeline, that pipeline one step in it is sending it to Gretel and you're gonna mutate your data somehow or create a synthetic data set of it as new data comes in. So that's allowed us to focus um, pretty heavily on really where our value is instead of just building connectors. And by finding a couple integration points that we can work with, whether it's an object store or whether it's a Kafka stream or Kinesis or things like that, you can integrate pretty quickly. So going back to your, your original question, we take in simple primitives and we put out simple primitives, right? So those, uh, whether it's, a, as I was saying earlier, a CSV or a data frame or a dictionary, and We take that data and to walk through the pipeline, we process that data with our validators, which kind of add that expert level of knowledge that we'll apply later to say, yes, this is the valid floating point variables that we see existing inside of this particular field. Or this is the date range, or this is the the character set that we expect to see. We've done a couple blogs on this. It's all uh, it's all open, and then essentially we break it down and train a, a neural network on that data, have it recreate. Essentially, so we go through a couple phases using best of breed technologies, unsupervised tokenization, for example, really to help you generalize and work well. If you guys are familiar with uh, word piece or sentence piece tokenizers, they work really well for helping to learn repeated text that exist in large data sets. Those types of approaches work really well when you have a mixed a floating point, for example, data set with unstructured text. So if you were to think about like a hospital discharge records, this is a good example where you've got a lot of integer data, a lot of date data, but then you also have a doctor's notes interleaved. So how do we help the language model learn both structured and free text as well? Tokenization is a good step there. We then go through uh, training the, the neural network model on it. And then we ask the neural network model to generate a small set of data that would run through our validator. And essentially we throw the kitchen sink at that, that set of data that's being created, both at the model and whatever kind of privacy concerns we've identified in the model, but then also the data set and say like, where are there some risks here? Where do we see data being repeated? And at the end of that, the idea being that you have both a synthetic model that's been created, you have an initial battery test that's been done against generating data from that model and trying to say, like, how do we give you as a developer a sense of confidence that A, this model is creating something that I care about, e.g. the complex insights that you might have in your original data? And then B, how do I make sure it's not reproducing too much of the data that I care about and imposing on privacy constraints?
0: So if you're training a model on this data set, in what will what be, say, the minimum number of records that one would need to be able to create a representative
1: Synthetic data set? That's a good question. It depends on the level of heterogeneous data you have, like how unique is each record. If you're repeating the same thing over, you're going to get the same thing back. So it's a difficult question. I I have found with moderate levels of of cardinality in the data that typically a couple thousand rows is enough to get you um, started and get you to a pretty good place without needing to do something else to perturb the data or change it. And then that scales all the way up to biggest data sets that we worked with, 100 million rows in that. And I think at that point, one of the things that we seek to really automate on behalf of our developers and our customers we're working with is to remove you needing to be a, an expert in machine learning to work with this library. So as the complexity of the data set changes, like how do we change the default approach that we're taking to creating synthetic data? Do we need a more complex neural network? Do we need to increase the number of RNN units in it? What do we do with the learning rate? Things like that. So this is a a big focus for us is, and then I've learned working with developers, even if you're, I'd say, A, there are way less experts in machine learning than we all expect (laughs) as you go across companies. And then B, those experts in machine learning are also really busy in trying to solve their problems. So I think it's one of the things like you cannot overstate the value of, of simplicity when it comes to solving a use case for a developer or a data scientist or machine learning engineer. So, we try to give you the ability. Keras, actually, this is a really great example. I think the the Keras engineers, when they first started building it, what the design principle they followed was this idea of progressive disclosure of complexity. And I think that's one that's really difficult to get, but get it right 95% of the time. If you want to dive in, allow people to dive into the next level and fine tune the network for their particular use case, like another level and another level, but you're never required to learn or even see how that is that's working it's uh, something that you can get to if you need it that's one of the things like i think it's a great design principle it's one that we're trying to have to follow as well
0: Mm -hmm. is there a particular set of use cases or qualities of a data set that make it not suitable for this type of anonymization synthetic creation
1: There are some qualities that give us a little bit of trouble right now. We're working on it. I think these are ones that we'll always be working to to improve over time. But I would say challenges with a language model approach is that it works really well on dense data. If you have a highly sparse, one-hot encoded, 1,500-column data set, it's going to be difficult for the network to learn the structure of that data and also the insights inside of it. So that's a case where, you know, right now we encourage people to work with the the kind of the most least sparse, most compact and dense version of the data set possible. So I think that's one type of of data that creates a problem. Another one, which also is really just a technical challenge to get by is that the randomness in data. So, if you have a bunch of SHA hashes inside of your data set and you send that to us, the model's going to spend a lot of time trying to learn to recreate those SHA hashes. So, that's one that I think that that we can get by and work over time. I was going to say, you know, and on that line, like on that line of thinking, of learning from our customers, one thing that we have actually built recently that I think is really cool is realizing that in a lot of data sets, even if you want a synthetic version of it, there are certain fields and columns that you want to keep. And whether this is a foreign key or if it's some like constraint around dates, date ranges, things like that that you have based on your use case, that's one where we've actually, I think, built a pretty clever approach where you identify those fields early and say, these are the fields I want to preserve. And what the the network does actually as it starts to train the network, moves those columns, shifts them left, so to speak, to the very beginning. And then essentially when you... um, Want to create new data using the, the model, and you want to constrain certain columns. Essentially, uses that to seed the model. So, if I say I want time and I want whether this patient was had a disease or not to be different seeds for the model, you prevent that. You provide that at the beginning of each record, and then the the model essentially auto completes the rest of the record. And that's been a really fun one with a lot of kind of neat applications. We're just discovering now. We call it model seeding. So not entirely new. And this is something like that people have been doing with language models at OpenAI for a while, where you you know have it start writing a blog for you by seeding the model. You're doing the same thing with structured data.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, I saw this is uh, the technology that's being used behind the blog post of fixing the imbalances in a lot of mm-hmm. these data sets, correct?
1: Exactly. Representation bias being a big challenge we see with our customers. We started out some of the first blogs that we did, actually, and... Really, the first use case that we ran into where we said, wait, we can really do something to address bias in data sets was working with one of our customers, and they highlighted medical data sets, and often the the gender inequality inside of those data sets, just due to the sample set and the original survey, can we help address that? We we decided to say, what is the the least opinionated way that we can go about like uh, surveying this and looking at the possibility of using synthetic data to boost underrepresented classes in data? We went where anyone else went, so we went to Kaggle and, and uh, came across, essentially looked for the health, top healthcare data sets. And one of the first ones that we looked at was a heart disease data set, really cool data set published by UCI that gives a, a variety of features that were collected across um, several hundred patients. And at the end, it says, does this patient have heart disease or not? It's in the top, I believe, 10 data sets on Kaggle. A lot of people are using this. And what we realized was that there was a two to one gender imbalance between males and females inside the data set. So when we wanted to test this, essentially, we provide a seed to our, our model and we say gender. is this Essentially, this is a protected column. We train the model so in such a way that when we tell it to generate data, we start with the gender and we have it essentially autocomplete the rest of the data. What we found was actually really cool. So the, the approach we took was we took this data set from Kaggle. We took the top kernels that were run against this data set and performance precision recall that they were getting boosted. So we had, you know, A, the existing data set and top kernels. B, in the second one, we boosted the female representation to build equality across the two. And there is definitely no substitute for having a perfect survey with perfectly distributed sample set, but that's not something you always have that luxury of. So we tried a dataset A versus dataset B, which is augmented or boosted with additional female records and had pretty incredible response so across those top kernels and the classification algorithms xg things like that we saw like a six percent increase in the f1 score for the ability to detect female heart disease and the really cool story too was that it resulted in like a two percent overall increase as well in accuracies which was a really positive result it's one that we're really diving into i think addressing these types of imbalances in data sets is going to be a really important part of that ml dataset generation and model generation process and we see synthetic data as being a really neat way to build a better data set in addition to building a better algorithm. Yeah, it's really cool
0: to see how just how many use cases there are for this technology. It just sounds you, you keep finding new ones like every single month or so. That's super cool.
1: Thanks. It's been a blast. And that's part of, I think, going back to surprising learnings that we've had from learning in public, as so to speak, but really open sourcing our technology and then providing blogs and working examples with customers as we've started to see them applying these synthetic data libraries or primitives that we're building towards new use cases. And as we work with them to do a good job there and given the, the opportunity to share that and, and put it out for developers to experiment with.
0: Mm-hmm. And I definitely highly recommend everyone go check out the Gretel blog. Uh, so I'll put the link in below. It's full of super interesting reading. And now at a at a very high level, like if someone maybe in a company on their own project is maybe starting, wants to get started with synthetic data, maybe for their own use case, what might be out of the all the use cases we've talked about, what might be like the, the first thing that would be best for them to get started with just to learn how it all works?
1: I think one of the areas that feels... Pretty rents and repeat and generates immediate value is that customer use case of building a better pre-production environment. So whether it's taking your, your data warehouse and building a synthetic version of it, or if you're taking a production database and you're exporting that database and you are building a view of it that's anonymized that people can have access to, I think it's a really great place to get started. A, it's low risk. You need to do better than you're doing currently, which often is, as we were saying earlier, either snapshotting data or and redacting it or just snapshotting it and, and using it. So I think that's been an area we've seen a lot of success. Also, I think we provide a couple different sample data sets to work with and examples that you can find online. So you don't even need to start with that really sensitive data. You can pull down an example of a medical data set or pull down an example of something that um, fits your domain and experiment with it. Yeah, I was just looking
0: at, uh, I think it was the bike sharing data set that, that you have in an example. I was just going through that example uh, a few days ago. So yeah, definitely great that you have those examples to get started with uh, so people can start to learn how the how it all works. Or are some of the maybe common patterns of usage that you see in a at, at these companies for, let's go with that pre-production data set Is it, uh, or pre-production environment? Are they just like dumping it or having some sort of dump from the data warehouse every like every few hours or days depending on how big it is, of course, and then just taking that pandas exporting as a CSV and then dumping it into your system? Or how are people starting to do that?
1: We see we built our technology around streaming use cases and we wanted to be able to support essentially connecting directly up to a Kinesis stream and or a Kafka stream and transforming that data in real time. What we see from customers now and also building towards like more production timeline or pipelines is a micro batching type approach where depending on the size of the data warehouse or the data set you're working with, essentially batching out some quantity of records at time based on some time interval. If you are building a a, a testing version of an environment, you may have like much lower time constraints. You may say, I, I need to have this done within a minute of time. So it's not so important, or sorry, it's extremely important what level of uh, latency happens because that would result in you being able to detect problems faster. So in those cases, we see really small batches of records, let's say 500 to 1,000 at a time, being sent over to our system for labeling and pseudonymization and then put directly into the pre-production environment for testing. On the flip side of it, you have a machine learning pipelines where you're um, updating machine learning algorithm based on new data. And that's where things like versioning and really being able to tr- uh, track the uh, lineage of your data is extremely important. So we see data being exported to an S3 environment where it's hashed or or to a different tool that you might use to track data lineage and then uh, much slower batches, right? So this case you might be training on a daily basis on new data or balancing a data set on a more of a daily basis, but the new model that's created and the augmented records are tied to a specific export that happened, once a day where you can track the changes and where the data originally came from.
0: So where would, it, in that example of a, a machine learning pipeline where you're getting that data versioning and then using it to train a model, would you want to, if it has PII in it, would you want to anonymize it, say, bef- before you it even gets to the model if you're training it on that anonymized data set? Uh, or would you have it run on the real data and
1: then have
0: it be stored anonymized?
1: Mm-hmm. Good question. In my opinion, from a privacy perspective, you never want PII to hit a model. And for the exact reason, that model, while we understand at some level what the model's doing, often there's some level of complexity in there that, that is really difficult for a human to understand or reason about what the model's going to do with that data. So I would say you want that data that you training the model with to be something that you would be totally fine open sourcing, ideally, (laughs) in the future. So at that point, you want to have any PII removed and any ability for the, ideally for a re-identification attack or things like that, you want to have that removed. So you want to be training with your cleanest records possible, plus um, your synthetic data. So I think in that case, the pre-processing steps of synonymization on the data is important. That said, you wanna remove and you wanna replace that data with like data. So this is where being able to replace uh, names in your data or addresses in your data with locale specific versions of it are pretty important because your model's gonna learn from those conversations, chat logs, whatever it is you're looking at. For the second part of your question of what point do I anonymize the data? Do I like store that out somewhere else? We see an up and coming pattern that is becoming possible. I think with some advancements around, like actually in cloud technology. So to give an example, we did a blog about two weeks ago on S3. Just replay, they released a new feature called the the Object Access Lambda, and this gives a feature that developers have been asking for forever, <laughs> and makes it possible in the S3 world. But essentially, what it allows you to do is use a lambda to transform or mutate an object at access time. So if you have sensitive data landing in a production bucket that is that raw version of absolute customer data, but you want to see it anonymize it before you use it to train a uh, machine learning, synthetic model, anything like that. Essentially, we've got a blog on how this works. There are some sharp edges, but at at the end of the day, what it's doing is accessing through your exact same S3 APIs, accessing an object. That object is processed by a Lambda. That Lambda will, for example, replace names with fake names and things like that, and then give it directly to the applications requesting it. So it's transparent access to S3, and in this case it is anonymizing an object at access time, which is really cool, reduces duplication of data, allows you to reason about your data pretty well.
0: So in the pattern that you mentioned uh, in the first part of your answer of not being able to have any sort of private identifying data hit, actually hit the model, or in your experience rather, working with customers in in that pattern of training models on only the anonymized data set, is there some sort of loss that you find that they experience in training that model? Because of course it is a like a strict data loss rather than any sort, of, unless you're doing the imbalancing with additional data or something like that.
1: We uh, we do a lot of testing internally. We've done some blogs on this, essentially comparing the accuracy of either a pure synthetic or an augmented synthetic model versus the the pure original data. One of the Big questions that any data or ML engineer is going to run into is, is the exact question you ask: what am I losing by removing this field or by replacing this field? A design pattern that I think is cool to use when building. And you've seen this, actually, this was a design pattern that was gaining some traction at, at AWS. I think if you look at like the I, IoT analytics product, this is an example where you have a raw stream of data that comes in. And the question is like, where do I filter that data and, but still have the flexibility or the ability to guarantee that. Uh, We're learning as much as possible. So I think one of the approaches, unfortunately, taken in the world is people say, well, I need all of it. Right. So you start off your process by saying, I need every bit of the data. And then over time, we'll ask our data engineers to remove things that we don't care about. Another way to to give yourself that same benefit without that level of risk or just that not at all like totally blunt approach to your data engineering is, for example, having your raw data that you're collecting uh, from your devices, your customers, whatever, land inside of an environment. Let's pick on S3, for an example, just because it's easy with really restricted access. And essentially, you create views on top of that data based on the types of fields that you might need to access. So whether you have an anonymized view or you just have a a view where you've got a redacted level, like essentially what your developers are interacting with every day are these views that are created with a subset of the data in the production environment. So you still have everything. You just don't have unrestricted access to everything that's been a pretty neat model and you can build retention policies on the restricted data you can build retention policies on the view data things like that really help you provide only access to data that people need but up to all of the data that you need to do the best job possible and uh, with that approach and a long way of answering this question i think that running tests on the accuracy of models created both With kind of, especially initially in the process, unrestricted access to data versus those views that you're building is really important and I think uh, something that you need to quantify before you start using any type of transformations to your data or ML models at scale.
0: Yeah, certainly people should quantify it for themselves, but is there some sort of, I don't know, average loss that you see across uh, a lot of different customers?
1: I could reference, actually, we did some research and we did a a blog where we pulled down, we've started referring to this internally as the Kaggle 500, but essentially what we did is uh, pull down the top 500 datasets on Kaggle that have machine learning tasks associated with them, generate a synthetic version of that dataset, and then compare it to the same tasks that that, run the same top kernels on the tasks on those datasets. And I would say Hard to give a number because it's extremely task dependent, it's extremely data set dependent. But I like when I think about things internally for many use cases, I would say the synthetic version by itself gives you 90 to 95 percent of the value or the accuracy of the non-synthetic model and that's just an average i would encourage anyone to look at the blogs there's actually cases where it works well even better and that was a bit of a surprise to us using a pure synthetic data set not boosting anything intentionally just um, building a synthetic version of the original data that is just i think a byproduct of the model kind of learning some of the correlations that exist in the input data And then recreating those correlations at a slightly higher level that the, whatever regression algorithm, anything you're training on top of it is able to learn. So that was a surprise that on a substantial number of data sets, using a pure synthetic um, dataset that we created based on training on the original data actually outperformed the original data set. Lucky coincidence. And I think it's due to the fact that it just helped highlight some of the correlations the model was able to learn better.
0: What are some of the other surprises, biggest surprises that you had? You had an idea of how this company, this technology might play out as you started to found it. What uh, were the biggest surprises, things that uh, flipped your mind?
1: I think that a pleasant surprise and something that we've learned is that Addressing that concern that privacy is a V1 feature, is it a V1 feature? And a lot of customers would say that's a V2 or V3. And I think one of the things that, you know, I saw that led us to help fund Gretel was saying like this, here are all the problems that happens when you treat privacy and security as a V3 feature. But what we found and what I've seen is that it's not an issue of how important it is to developers. I think developers find privacy and security of their data and maintaining customer trust. Is probably the thing that keeps them up at night more than anything else. It's just so hard to get. So this is one kind of going back to that product philosophy of reducing complexity and friction as much as possible. Make it accessible, make it something you can experiment with a fake data set for first and, and see how it works. Really does show that I think that, uh, that developers do care about that. So that's been a, a really cool learning. The second one to, uh, to speak to, I think, is that we're just starting to discover that AI ethics discussion. And I think one of the things that's fascinating is that for a lot of our customers in the conversations, you see them rolling that right into privacy. And I think that's a a really subtle and incredible insight is that it's not just about somebody's personal data, right? It's about the data set as a whole and how does that reflect your business, your customer set and the decisions that you're making. We see um, use cases around bias removal, not just like building a better medical data set, but like building a more inclusive environment as being one of those things I think is incredible. We've been working with a couple gaming companies, and I think that's a neat example where they have big cloud environments, millions of users, tremendous amounts of data. If they just trained their ML algorithms on that that data set that they have, it may not be representative of the types of um, users that they want to include to have a truly inclusive environment. So that's where you see like getting rolled into the exact same discussions we have around how do we guarantee user privacy? How do we build and ensure that the algorithms that we're training, the recommendation algorithms, things like that, create the type of a bias-free inclusive environment that we want to create.
0: So, And you've told me before that, uh, or I've seen your website as well, that it's not just a a technical problem. It's also one of culture. And you already mentioned that developers in general do ca- tend to care about a lot about their customers' privacy, the their data not getting out. But what have you seen in not just your work with their customers at Credo, but also in your previous experiences of protecting sensitive data? What are some of those patterns, both technically and in the culture of being able to not have any of that sensitive data leak out or otherwise be have unintended consequences?
1: I think there's there's definitely a cultural barrier to sharing data, even across teams in a business. And this was highlighted really well. Kaggle does a, uh, a yearly survey of data science. And they say, essentially, what's hard about building with data? What tools do you like to use? What barriers exist? And I believe it was in the 2019 survey they had where the data scientists that they were interviewing listed cultural barriers like as one of the top three issues to working with data. So you have, of course you have dirty data creating problems. <laughs> you have access to data being a problem. And then right up there with those uh, those challenges that people are facing is institutional knowledge, lack of trust, things like that, that happen across, across organizations and across teams. And I, I think one of the ones that we look to as a model for a company I think that did an excellent job on uh, addressing this was GitHub, where I think if you rewind 10 or 15 years and you look at how people shared or worked on collaborated on source code, there would be a lot of distrust inside organizations and no one would want to put anything online or anything like that. Because how do you trust the people you're working with? And what GitHub built was a social experience, right? Where you have names and you have identities that are tied to your, your personal thing. You see someone's face. And I think that really, I don't think it's a silver bullet to solve some of those lack of trust between teams, but I think it's a really good start where you can start building a social experience and workflows that exist at an application level to guarantee high quality data and sharing and things like that, that over time will, will change some of those kind of cultural problems that exist today.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is the third part of, of the Gretel product where you have your that data catalog where you're presumably trying to incorporate some of those things into it. What, and, uh, and in the Greylock post, when they led you around, they even called Gretel the aspiring to be the GitHub of data. So what is the what is your vision for that product, that feature?
1: I think that GitHub for data means a lot of things to a lot of different people. When Greylock mentioned that, and I think we've had, I've heard that as well. I think it goes around what we just discussed, which is when we aspire to to help companies share data securely using synthetic data, building an identity around that sharing. And if you log into our our beta right now, you can see it. Very similar experience where you can create a data project. You can invite other users to interact with your project stream. We're not creating a warehouse by no intention. Are we trying to compete with anything else? Rather, it's like enabling access to someone to your... Kafka or your Kinesis stream, but you have identities, you have access control and things like that over time. Yeah. I think, I guess a question is like, what is the privacy equivalent of a pull request? Like, how do you build those workflows that help teams collaborate on data where a way you can have high confidence and trust in the output of that data are all things that we are, are looking at. So really in kind of the Gretel world, when you hear GitHub for data, it's talking about that kind of collaborative experience on data rather than versioning or things like that, that I think is another way to interpret the same.
0: To start to, to wrap this up, you, like I mentioned before, raised your Series A a few months ago. And so I presume that means that you are trying to actively hire onto your team. So what are some of those roles that people can go and check
1: uh, we've got a, a set of roles listed on our website. If you look at our company culture, we are a remote team, so we are we've got a slight concentration of people around San Diego, but across the United States, and we even brought in our first developer from Canada recently. So really, like we're trying to build an engineering culture where people are encouraged to to build and to innovate and to take ideas and talk to customers and build with them so at the moment everyone in the company codes which is (laughs) a good thing and a bad thing and as we grow i think a big focus for us continuing to double down on um, our investments around machine learning and privacy so whether it's building a better synthetic model or it's bringing on people that can start thinking about how do we move beyond text but into other formats audio video even working with companies in the in the experimentation and modeling space like all really experimentation phase space, like really interesting challenges to work on. Also developers experience building data engineering at scale and cloud environments. Part of our journey for reducing friction to customers is scaling out these workloads that right now you're using an SDK to access into APIs that can be deployed to our cloud or into a customer environment. So some really neat like ML orchestration challenges using Kubernetes and other really cool technologies. Final piece that we're looking forward too is really continuing to engage with our community. I would say it's important for us to build out this the Dev advocate roles and people like that can put on workshops and and really listen to our customers and ensure that we're building towards that roadmap.
0: Fantastic! I'm sure that you can definitely expect some applications from our listeners. We have a wide variety of people who I'm sure will be very excited about all of this. And of course, also your marketing is very much directed also towards developers. And so. Gretel AI is the URL, put it also put in the description below and people can go out and try that service. We already talked about it before. You can, uh, there's some seed data that is very easy to put in there and start playing around with. Listeners should definitely go and check that out as well. If they're interested.
1: Thanks for inviting me on the show, Charlie. I definitely appreciate it.
0: Of course. And uh, so we're going to finish off here with some of the listener favorites, the, uh, the rapid fire questions, and then I'll, I'll let you go. So the first question of that is what do you do for fun outside of work?
1: I have three daughters. Lucky father of twin daughters that are uh, 11 and my youngest is nine. So we're, uh, we're into rock climbing. So that's one thing. And it's been hard with the pandemic, but our gym is just opening up right now. So we're pretty excited to get back to that. Also love working on cars. So that's been a hobby and I'm trying to involve my kids in that as much as possible, but really it's just my hobby right now. Uh, but I love to, to work on uh, both new and old cars. Do you have a uh, project car at the moment? Uh, 1970 240Z, z Dotson. So an S30, just a a blast. And it's a simpler day where that very few electronics, which makes it a nice kind of departure from everyday work.
0: Very cool. And then next, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people?
1: I'm a huge sci-fi fan. And I'll give you a couple book recommendations that I love. I would say just for when I want to encourage, like when I've for my own motivation, going back and building something incredible, I probably read The Martian by Andy Ware once every six months. For an older book, cyberpunk genre, really fun technology and ahead of its time, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Incredible book. And for fun books when you just need to blow off some steam. And I'm actually reading this with my uh, my oldest daughter right now, there is a, a series called The Murderbot Diaries that came out by Martha Wells, which is about a Android security robot that enjoys just watching netflix all day so it's really fun serious lighthearted, and surprisingly human so i would recommend that one too
0: interesting yeah i definitely haven't heard of that last one that's funny so the next is uh what advice would you give to someone uh getting started with entrepreneurship
1: i have found being willing and open to talk about your ideas it's, it's like a muscle and you need to develop it over time. And there are initial, um, sure there are risks of talking about your ideas uh, with others, but at the same time, I found the value you get in the response from others outweighs the risk you have of talking about it. So I would encourage people to put yourself out there, write a blog, pull down some cool technology right on Medium. Medium's a great place to uh, to share ideas and start a discussion. And don't be afraid of, of anything. Just go out there and, and see what you can do. It's amazing what a, a single person or a small group of people can do, even versus uh, the large companies. So I'd say find your passion and go for it.
0: Awesome message. Then next, what have you recently changed your mind on?
1: Coming from the AWS world, where you see the incredible scale that you can get in the cloud, it's difficult to imagine why a developer or a company wouldn't just build in the cloud? Like, why not use auto scaling? And if you need a million instances, great. But I think one of the things that I've learned is there are very real reasons why a lot of developers need to work inside a more locked down system and may not have access to all of the tools that they want. So, being able to extend an olive branch to help them get started on that journey to which may land exactly where it is or may land in the cloud someday, I think it is really important. And that's one where you start seeing like technologies like Kubernetes and Helm have been so useful as we're thinking about building both our own kind of engineering pipeline, but then also how do we meet that customer requirement that in some cases customers need to run environment, uh, like workloads, machine learning workloads, interact with data inside their own environment. So I think meeting Customers where their data is really important. And I also think that as much as you can get incredible scale and efficiency, if you're running in our cloud, for example, building synthetic workloads, that flexibility to deploy wherever you want to, like the computer under your desk, if you need to, is, is really important. So that's one that we're looking for and we're building essentially using the latest technology to make that possible for, for developers.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, I know that there's a whole genre of startups where their stated goal is just to take whatever AWS and Google have and uh, make it available for people who have to run things in data centers or yeah. multi cloud environments. The so challenge definitely.
1: that you get there, though, is that once they hit that scale, like, how do you scale up past what I have in my data center? And that's one that I would encourage, like, any of the of startups out there to think about too is the answer is a better answer both right where you have a seamless ability to choose where your workload sits if it's the cloud or if it's in your data center and then from a product perspective like if you're building this as a company one of the things that i've seen create problems for developers is customers get so used to your on-premise product that it becomes it feels like a jarring transition to use the cloud and you start asking what are the differences between these two so one of the ones that we aspire to do, and I would encourage other people to think the same, is minimize, make sure that never happens because that's just gonna create unnecessary friction. So trying to find a way that it is seamless, you can run in the cloud, you can run in your own environment, you can run on a Raspberry Pi or your desk, like whatever um, thing you do, enable a similar experience so you can continue to scale and follow that kind of journey.
0: Very interesting. And now lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on?
1: I think a hard truth in our space around privacy and around companies that are dealing with large amounts of of data the question is who are you trying to protect and it's very easy to say we have these regulations we have gdpr we have ccpa and in effect that becomes your customer so how do i ensure to the t that i follow what this person's saying because i'm a business and i'm protecting my business i would I feel very strongly, and so do my founders, and I I think uh, I would encourage people to think the same thing, that GDPR and CCP are very important, compliance, legislature, things like that, driving kind of the mass public mindshare of privacy. But at the end of the day, I believe it's the consumer that you need to protect. So at the end of the day, you are collecting information for medical research, and it's coming from a patient. I personally believe that your responsibility is to them. and by Doing right by them, then you will also meet many, if not all, of your larger compliance requirements. I would encourage, like companies, I would encourage developers at companies that are thinking about privacy, think through through that lens. It's not customer data; it's Charlie's data, it's Alex's data, and am I doing enough to protect that?
0: Yeah, that's a really fantastic answer. It's definitely easy to get caught up in, we just have to follow these this law to the letter, and then we'll be good. Rather than the bigger picture of we should do right by our customers so that's a great message and so that brings us to the end of this episode so alex thank you so much for coming on to the podcast it was been it's been a really interesting conversation i'm even more excited about uh, synthetic data than i was before and have a few ideas that i want to go and uh, implement to make some of our workflows uh, possibly even better so thank you much for that and thank you again for coming on to the program
1: hi guys thanks for inviting me on
0: thank you so much for listening it is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations if you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast visit our website mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list where every week i send out the best of what i've found that will help you become A better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's MLEngineered.com.